Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Continuing our series in the letter of Colossians. So if you'll be finding that, we are in the third chapter, verses 18 through 21 this morning. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. And we've been talking for several weeks now about our relationships within the church, the body of Christ. That is how we are to apply the gospel in our relationships one with another when we gather together. But this morning, we are going to change venues And instead of looking at our relationships in the church, we are going to move our attention to the home. Moving from our spiritual family to our physical family in the home. Now, by most accounts, the home or the family is the basic unit of society. As the family goes, so goes the church and so goes the culture. And if that is indeed true, then we are in trouble because you are well aware of the massive struggles that the family is now facing. Absentee fathers, unwed mothers, rebellious children, no-fault divorces, the statistics for all of these are staggering. Add to this the fact that we struggle to even define what a family is anymore or what it should look like, and the conclusion is very clear. The family is on the brink of collapse. And as a result, younger people are waiting longer to get married if they choose to get married at all. We joke at weddings sometimes about a, a spouse being a ball and chain, but to many younger in the younger generations, that is no joke at all. And so they choose instead to go from one relationship to another or to, or to live with someone rather than making the commitment that is signed with a piece of paper. And then when children come along or families are blended together with multiple children, the dynamics just get more difficult. The strain that rebellious teenagers can put on a marriage or on a family is already very difficult and can crumble that particular family. Perhaps with all of these difficulties, we ought to stand back and wonder how any marriage can make it or how any family can actually be happy. Now, I'm not trying to be overly negative this morning, just trying to be realistic. And the reality is that in the home, and specifically I'm referring to the Christian home, that many of them are far removed from what they ought to be, from what God has called us to be, and from what we desire it to be. Now, if you found it difficult to think of living out your faith within the body of Christ the last few weeks It's even more difficult to live out our faith in the home. For in the home, we have more intimate relationships and certainly more time, making it much harder to live out our faith together. The home is a place where we see the worst of one another. It's a place where we often let down our guard and display who we really are. You see, when we gather together as the church for just a few hours every week, we try to mask or cover up who we really are. And we can do that for a few hours here and there. But in the home, we see each other for what we really are. Perhaps this is 
ironically seen in the arguments we have getting ready for church on Sunday mornings. I mean, raise your hand if you had an argument. No, don't raise your hand. But some of you had arguments on the way to church this morning. And then, of course, when we got here, we set those arguments aside and acted like they didn't exist. Or maybe it's pictured in the difference between what you look like right now. Again, we dress up to come to Sunday morning. We put on nice clothes versus what you look like, smell like when you first wake up in the morning. That's the difference between the church and the home. And as in so many areas of life, perhaps part of our struggle is the fact that we've forgotten, we've ignored, or we've just flat out disobeyed what God has to say about this particular sphere of our lives. And specifically, I'm talking about the roles that God has designed for each of us to play within the home. I remind you that God ordained the family. God established the home as a foundational institution of society. And so perhaps we ought to listen to what the founder has to say about this very important aspect of our lives. So this morning we are going to talk about, whether you want to or not, household roles. Not rules, but roles from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, in talking about household roles, you do understand that we're not going to look at all of the household roles. We're not even going to come close. We are simply going to look at the ones that are mentioned here in this particular text. Secondly, as we talk about each role, and I'm going to say this multiple times because this is key. As we talk about each of the particular roles and how important it is that we improve upon them, I want you to focus on your part. I don't want you to be thinking about how your spouse ought to improve or what your children need to do or how you hope they are listening to this sermon. Now, I hope they're listening too, but I want you and me to focus on our responsibility, the role that we have in the home. The verses that I've just read are short and to the point. But the discussions that they have fostered are long and extensive. The parallel passage to this in the book of Ephesians is longer and more well known. These are the kind of verses that some harp on and others ignore altogether, neither of which is an option for us when we go through a book of the Bible like we're doing. As much as I might want to, I cannot skip these verses. But neither are we looking at these every other Sunday. So we might as well start with the most controversial. The first role in the home that Paul mentions is the wife's responsibility to submit. Now you can hiss and boo at me if you would like to. Those of you watching online, some of you have already tuned out. You've already clicked go or whatever you click to get out of there. Because this is something most of us do not like to talk about. But I remind you, this is not my word. You mean you put this word in the first point? It's not my word. 
It's Paul's word. He says very clearly, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, because this is Paul's word, he is often viewed as chauvinistic. He is out of touch with our times. And if that's the conclusion you come to, then you might as well add Peter to your list as well, because Peter says virtually the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Others conclude that Paul is just writing these things in a culture that is very much different than ours, and in so doing, he is merely repeating what the culture is already believing. And so while this would have been applicable to the first century culture, it is no longer applicable to our society that values equality. But if that is the approach that we're going to take with verse 18, then it makes sense that we take that same approach with verse 19. Most scholars call these household codes. They were quite common, not only in the Bible, but in the other cultures that existed around the biblical world. And so some say these words are not even original to Paul. He is just pulling them into his own letter here from common usage. But here's what I want you to see at this point. There is no other ancient code, no other ancient household code that says what verse 19 says. No other ancient household code that's been discovered commands husbands to love their wives. That's what we're going to get to in a moment. But I bring it up here because if you think verse 18 is countercultural to our times, and it is, and you think it was culturally relevant in their times, and it was, verse 19 is the exact opposite. So you see, if Paul wanted to say something countercultural, he could have, because he did. And that's what he says in verse 19. That was unheard of in his day. So if Paul wanted to go against culture in verse 18 with his command to the wives, he certainly could have done that, but he chose not to. When we as a Southern Baptist Convention put in a statement to our Baptist faith and message in the year 2000, a statement on the family, and in that statement, we added the words, or we included the words, that a wife ought to submit graciously to the servant leadership of her husband. Our culture said that we have gone back to the 50s. But we did not go back to the 50s. We went back to the first century. Because we pulled those words from the Word of God, which is exactly what it says here and in the other passages that deal with this. So rather than try and discount what is said or water it down, what we need to see is what it does say and how we are to apply it to our lives as a command from God to the wives for the home. Now again, this is one role among many, but it is the role that is mentioned here, so it is the role that we are dealing with. Nor does it mean that women are to submit to all men. This is specifically for the home, specifically to the wife. This says nothing about the role in society or beyond that. But it is an important role that is often ignored or ridiculed. Now, let me be very clear that submission does not in any way mean that a woman is inferior to a man. We are all made in the image of God and we are all equal before God. You may remember a few weeks ago, we looked at verse 11, where Paul says there's no barriers now. There's no Greek, there's no Jew, and he lists several things. Now, in this book, he does not list male and female, 
but in other letters he does. That is, the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down these barriers. However, that does not mean that roles are no longer a, a thing. So just because he says these barriers have been broken down as it pertains to the gospel does not mean that there are not specific roles and responsibilities within the home. The Bible says that Jesus was in submission. He was subject to his parents. We certainly wouldn't say that Jesus was inferior to his parents. Nobody makes that claim. But he lived in submission to them. The Bible says that Jesus was subject unto God the Father. And yet we also know the Bible is very clear in the equality in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Furthermore, this is not something that men should demand of their wives. Men, hear me clearly here. This is not something for us to demand, which is why I said at the outset, and will say again, you need to focus on your roles and responsibilities, not on someone else's. The command is given to the wives. It is not husbands make your wives submit. It is wives submit to your husbands. And the word means a voluntary putting yourself under the authority or direction of another. In this case, obviously, the husband. You are to do this in recognition of God's established structure within the home. But part of the consequences of the fall and of ongoing sin is a rebellion against this established structure manifested in a woman's desire to rule or have control over her husband. Now, it is also the case that men abuse their responsibility and role as well, making submission into something that it was never intended to be or abandoning their responsibility to lead altogether. So what does it mean for a wife to submit unto her husband? What does this specifically mean? What is this role in the home? Well, number one, I would say that it begins by acknowledging that this is a God-given structure. Meaning that you recognize that even as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the home. This is said repeatedly in the Bible. Again, this is not my idea. This is not me telling you to do this. This is the word of God saying God has established the home and this is the role and responsibility within that home. I'm not asking you to like it. I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm simply saying acknowledge that this is the God-given role for the wife within the home. It is God's design, and he knows what he's talking about. So then secondly, I would say you need to accept your husband's leadership, faults and all. No one is in any way saying that the husband is going to be perfect in his leadership. He is going to make mistakes. The fact that I'm the one up here preaching this does not mean that I'm an expert on this. I make mistakes as well as you do. And if you'd like more specifics on that, you are welcome to ask Tracy to fill in some of those details for you. But as a wife, when, I'm not really, don't ask her. But when those mistakes arise, and they will, that's your opportunity to encourage your husband so that he can learn from those mistakes and provide better leadership for your family in the future rather than to say, I told you so, or you should have listened to me. Your responsibility is to encourage him, to help him, to learn from his mistakes. And then thirdly, anticipate that God will use him and his leadership to strengthen your family. 
Again, if this is the God-given structure, and we're making the case from the Bible that it is, and if you submit yourself to this God-given structure, then we can expect that God is going to use that to strengthen your family. And I think we can agree, all of us want stronger and more biblical families. So not only will you submit to him, but you'll expect that God is going to use that to strengthen your family. And I would encourage you to pray that God will do just that. And notice the last part of verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, this is not simply the right thing to do as a spouse, though it is. This command is not based on the character or quality of your husband. It is based on your relationship with the Lord. But having said that, I don't expect that God would want any wife to live under the constant threat of physical abuse. So husbands who use this idea of submission to further abuse their spouse do not understand verse 18, nor do they understand verse 19. And so I want to conclude this section on the wife's role in the home by simply saying this, if you are in a situation of abuse, I urge you to get help and to do it now. Do not wait, get help immediately. Now let's move to verse 19, the husband's role. The husband's responsibility is to love. We turn our attention to this command, which is also very clear and yet misunderstood. The husband's role is to love his wife, which is the summary of a Christian husband's duty. Now, when we hear teenagers talking about falling in love or finding the love of their life, we think to ourselves, they can't possibly know what they're talking about because they do not have the maturity to know what true love is and that it's going to last. And the fact of the matter is, we have the same problem as husbands. We think we're mature, but oftentimes we're not. And though we say we love our spouses, we don't often show it. So this is a word that is easy to roll off the tongue, even if previous generations didn't. But it is much harder for us to apply day by day in the home. So as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the countercultural aspect of this text. No one else in that culture said, husbands love your wives. But the Bible comes along and the gospel comes along and transforms the relationships in the home such that it says this is the husband's responsibility. In a patristic society, and I, I hate to say it this way, but it's true. In a patristic society like the first century, the husband's role was simply to do whatever he wanted to do. The wife was, in essence, treated as property. They had few rights and could be disposed of at will. And yet the gospel so transformed relationships that now the Bible comes along and says, no, you are to love your wife, and this love is to be at the highest level. So contrary to popular opinion, Jesus nor Paul were demeaning toward women. In fact, they elevated the status of women far beyond what they have ever experienced before. Again, if we go to the parallel passage in Ephesians, the Bible says there that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We've already heard sung very beautifully, I might add, this morning about how the blood of Christ was given for us. That is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's the kind of love that Paul is commanding of husbands here toward their wives. And as I've said before, 
Wives will tend to graciously submit to that kind of love far more readily than simply demanding for her to do that. So husbands, if, it's, if your first tendency is to think how much better your wife ought to be at submitting to you, you ought to rethink that. And you ought to think about how you ought to be more loving to your wife. Our definition of love does not come from popular music. It does not come from Hollywood. You're not going to find it as much as you might try on the Hallmark Channel every night. Our definition of love must come from the Word of God. And for that, we tend to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a passage of Scripture that we sometimes even refer to as the love chapter. Now, I know you're familiar with this. You've been to enough weddings to have heard this read before. In fact, many of us know some of this by heart. But I want you to hear it afresh and anew this morning, and I'm going to read it slowly. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, just the very pertinent verses here. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8, where it defines love for us. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. And the chapter concludes by saying, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So men, let me pull out a few things from this definition of love that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13. And we see here that love is a selfless kind of love. It looks out for the needs and concerns of others, which means in our case as husbands, the needs of our wives must take priority, which is more than just bringing home a paycheck to provide financially for her and for your family. It also means that we have a responsibility to look out for her emotional needs and her spiritual needs as well. And though it doesn't say it here, but elsewhere it does as believers are to submit one to another, you can certainly see here how a husband in many ways must even submit himself to his wife. By that I mean, if her needs come first, then we must place our needs below that, which is in essence the definition of submitting. So love means that I must submit myself to her needs and her concerns because I desire for her needs to be met even before my own are. The opposite of this kind of love is a selfish kind of love. And selfishness is one of the chief causes of marital breakdowns. All of us, of course, are guilty of this probably more than we'd be willing to admit. So the husband is not to be a dictator demanding his rights. Rather, love demands that he forego his rights to ensure that his wife's needs are met. I would also say, as I've just alluded to, that this love ought to be a secure kind of love. That is, it, it remains. It is not fickle. It does not come and go. And this kind of love would go a long way in meeting the emotional and spiritual needs of your wife. God's love for us is both eternal and unconditional. That means it abides. And if our love is to be modeled after the love of Christ, then the husband's love for the wife ought to be secure. That is, it does not come and go. Conditional love is the opposite. I'll love you if. 
And then we fill in the blank with all kinds of conditions. I'll love you if you submit. I'll love you if you meet my needs. I'll love you if you keep looking like you did when we first met. On and on that list can go. That's not the kind of love that we are to have. It's a secure kind of love which results in a satisfying love. A love for who we are unconditionally and securely brings great satisfaction to a marriage. So husbands, it'll go a long way for you to love your wife in this manner. And if you go away from this sermon thinking about and talking about your wife submitting to you, and again, I keep bringing this up because this happens every time we hear this kind of sermon and every time we see this kind of text. Husbands walk away from this talking about how they're going to make sure their wives start submitting to them. And if that's your takeaway from this sermon, you've totally missed it. Because that's not the command for you. The command for you is husbands, love your wife. And as Ephesians says, as Christ loved the church. Which here in Colossians, he says, it means that we don't do this harshly. A word that has at its root making something bitter. So this refers to the husband being bitter toward his wife while he is leading her because of what she does or does not do. And obviously the kind of love we're talking about necessitates not harshness, not bitterness, but a God kind of love. So the wife is to submit, the husband is to love. Verse 20, the children are to obey. This is a different word from the word for submission. The word obey is actually a stronger word. It implies the need to follow commands, which is implicit, or not implicit, I should say, in submission. The wise husband listens to and solicits advice from his wife, but this is not the case in the parent-child relationship. We don't like the idea of obedience. Our society wants input. It's a big thing today. Don't just tell me what to do. Seek my advice, seek my input, or at the very least, you ought to at least tell me why I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. That's what we want these days. But the truth is, we all at times are in a position of simply being obedient. Scott talked this past week on Wednesday night about discipleship. And we said discipleship is basically a follower of Christ. That is the essence of discipleship in the Christian sense is someone who is a follower of Christ. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Again, he doesn't say we have to understand them. He doesn't say we have to agree with them. He simply says he's in a position over us whereby he can command us, and our responsibility is that we are to obey those commands. And so it is in the home when it comes to uh, parents and their children. Even as we are to follow Christ, and by the way, we model obedience for our children by how we obey the commands of God. In the home, children are to obey their parents. But sadly, as I mentioned a few, moment, a few weeks ago, in my opinion, commands are almost non-existent in some homes today. They've been replaced by bribery. I'll give you some ice cream if you do what I tell you to do. They've been replaced by resignation. That is, we just give in to their whimpering and their crying because we're tired of hearing it which merely teaches them that the next time they want something, they need to do the same thing again. And so we get more whimpering and crying in the future. Or my all-time favorite, the countdown to obedience. I'm going to count to five, and by the time I get to five, you ought to obey me, which is just teaching delayed obedience. And the Bible makes very clear that delayed or partial obedience is not obedience at all. 
So it's not a stretch to say that children run the home in many instances, even dictating where the family attends church. You know how many times I've heard this throughout my ministry? Pastor, we're going to so-and-so church because that's where the children's friends go. And that's where the children want to go. And I'm talking little kids. I'm not talking about teenagers. I'm talking about I've heard this as a reason to switch churches time and time again. Where children are dictating where the family worships. So we've got to return to parents giving commands and children understanding that they are to obey those commands. Now, when I say children, you understand I'm talking about children who are under the protection of their parents. That is, they are living in the home. I'm not talking about adult children. Now, we're all children. But as adult children, we are still to honor and respect our parents, but we don't live in obedience to our parents the rest of our lives. So I'm talking about the old adage, which I think is true. As long as you're under my roof, you're going to do what I say. And that's not just a parental line. I think that is biblical. And this is comprehensive. Paul says, in everything. Obedience is not to be when it's convenient. As I said a moment ago, it is not to be when, when it's delayed or partial, nor is it only to happen when the children particularly agree with what the parent wants them to do. Obedience is to be complete and comprehensive with one exception. Again, that exception is not given here, but we see it elsewhere. It's, a, it's inferred here, that is, we expect that a Christian parent is going to give commands that are in agreement with God's commands. But if that is not the case, that is, if by chance a Christian parent commands a child to do something that is against God's command, God's commands always trump a parent's commands. God's law always more important than what we say others are to do. So all of this, the obedience of children, is done not primarily to please the parents or to protect them from harm, but ultimately, again, because it is pleasing to the Lord. You remember last week we looked at verse 17, and this, this was this general statement. In everything you do, do it in the name of Jesus. This is just a more specific element of that. Now, children are to obey their parents because they do this in the name of God. It is pleasing to him. Verse 21, the last role we'll look at this moment, this morning, is what I'm calling parents and their responsibility to train. Now, I realize that the word parent is not in verse 21. Instead, the word fathers is. But that word can also mean parents as in both. And we certainly know that in the first century, fathers, especially with young boys over the age of seven, took a much more prominent role in parenting than perhaps we do today. And we know that in our culture, a lot of that falls on the mother. In fact, in many homes, a mother is the only one who is parenting because the father, as I mentioned, is absent. And so in our culture, it certainly applies to both parents or to the single parent in a one-parent home. And I'm calling this training because it speaks about how a parent is to lead their children. So even though we've just talked about parents commanding and children obeying, the idea is not that dad or mom, for that matter, is a drill sergeant that is barking out orders to his subordinates. Love, again, must reign supreme. So here we teach our children why they are to obey as part of the process, all of this done through love. You see the word provoke there? It's a rare word. It's only found one other time in all of the New Testament. And in fact, in that, in that case, it's positive. It's in 2 Corinthians, and Paul talks about how their zeal had stirred up the majority. 
That translation stirred up is the same word we see provoked here. But clearly here it is in a negative sense, as in to irritate or to nag. It's a parent constantly nagging or irritating their children to the point that they lose heart, to the point that they give up. Now, that's not to say that we can't discipline, but even in our discipline, it must be done in love for uh, their disobedience. Many, many an adult can remember harsh words that were spoken to them as a child by a parent or a coach. You'll never amount to anything. Why can't you be like your brother? Why are you so lazy? Those kinds of things get under the skin of a child. Again, that's proof because you still remember some of those things. And said often enough, it can cause them to lose heart and to give up and quit trying. And then more words come and it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. None of us are perfect parents. We all make mistakes in our training. But when we do, it's time to own up and repent of them and ask forgiveness of our children. And so we are to train them, but our training must be done in a way that does not lead them to lose heart. Obviously, we've not had the time this morning to go into all the roles that are involved in the home. We've just looked at the few that are mentioned here. But I at least want you to go away with this understanding. That God has established the home. Therefore, God has a say in what goes on in the home. And what God, said, what God says about the home is for your benefit and for your family. Therefore, it would be wise for us to take notice of what God has said in establishing the home. I mean, one of the requirements for leadership in the church is leadership in the home. So as the home goes, so goes the church. And as these two go, so goes society. And again, I've said it like three times now, I want you to concentrate on the command that is directed to you. Guys, I've not said anything to you about your wives submitting. That wasn't even part of this sermon. That was to her. So again, if you go out of here thinking what your wife needs to do to better fulfill that command, you've not listened to what I had to say this morning. The same is true for wives. Your responsibility is not to nag your husband into loving you more you can pray that he does that but you don't need to force him to we can't do that and children you're to obey and not question why your parents make you do the things that you do and in fact i think i think these roles are listed here among many others because these are the ones we struggle with wives struggle to be submissive because they prefer to be in control Husbands struggle to love because they prefer to be selfish. Children struggle to obey because they want things done their own way. And parents struggle to train their children without provoking them and leading to, them, leading to their discouragement. And I dare say there's enough work for all of us in these commands. Marriage is hard. Parenting is difficult. Children tend to think that they have the hard life, but we parents know we're the ones that are struggling. And none of us can do this alone. We all need one another for one thing. And we certainly need the guidance of God to show us how we can improve and strengthen us to do that very thing. So in closing, I want to ask you, again, according to the command directed at you, I want to ask you if you'll be willing to pray that God will open your eyes to where you fall short in your household role 
and that God would show you how you can improve in that particular role. Again, I'm not asking you to pray for your spouse. I'm not asking you to pray for your children. Nothing wrong with that, and you certainly can do that. But in this sermon, I'm asking you to focus on you, which is not being selfish. It is simply acknowledging what our specific role is in the family, acknowledging that God has established that role, and saying to God, I want to do better at that role. And by God's strength and with God's guidance, we can do that. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you have established the home. And we are, we are not wise to ignore that. Because you've established the home, you have some things to say about what goes on in the home. And I pray that we would heed the, these commands and this advice. That we would not just hear it, not just apply it to others, but we would apply it to ourselves. So I pray you would help the wives here to understand what it means to be submissive. I pray that you would help the husbands here to raise their level of love in the home. That children would learn to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I pray that you would help us as parents to train our children in such a way that they would not only come to know you, but be a faithful follower of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing and respond.